Zero Trust. What is it and how can you implement it in your organization? That's the theme we'll be exploring on this episode of the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, a leading site for cybersecurity professionals and enthusiasts alike. On the episode, I'm joined by Richard Archdeacon, Duo Security's advisory CISO, to discuss a zero-trust approach to security, i.e. trust no one, verify everything, and how this addresses some of the biggest concerns for security professionals, from digital transformation to enabling remote working. Richard has been in the industry for 25 years, so my first question to him was, how has his attitude to trust changed over the years? I think originally the level of trust was set by yourself within your own environment. We didn't really connect outside our organizations in pre-internet days, unless it was very specific um, controlled links between organizations along specific wires that were laid down specifically for that purpose. Then of course we had the internet which came which introduced concepts such as email which beyond between organizations. And that started to break down the area of control that we had. So who we trusted and how we interacted changed completely. We used to know who it was. We could go and look at them. We could go and see them. We could go and talk to them. It now became a mass of anonymous organizations, people connecting with us through this um, extraneous internet, over which we had no control. So that, I think, is how trust has changed. It's gone from very controlled, very tight, it's exploded into something which is now beyond our control, beyond our ordinary means. So how would you define zero trust? Well, zero trust was defined some years ago by a chap called John Kindervark at Forrester. And it builds on the concept of trusting and then verifying. So you don't just automatically trust a user. You have to verify and validate who they are. So what do we mean by that? Until now, we've had the concept of identity. The identity was a user logged in. They had a username, they had a password, they were within our control. They logged into our network, we knew what was going on. Now, we don't know who they are. We cannot always be certain, because we have this issue around compromised credentials, credentials being sold sold and stolen, people logging in from outside. So when somebody logs in, we now have to make a far more focused attempt to verify and validate who they are. So instead of trust being a binary control, I know who you are, I'll trust you, We have to say, we think we know who you are. We now have to go through various steps of validation to make sure we know who you are. And then we'll allow you to perform various acts based upon how much we know about you. So it's taking this whole concept of identity from being a binary decision to a far more variable, flexible decision. And then a decision as to what we will allow people to do once we've um, validated them against a certain level of trust. To look at it another way, we're actually reversing the way we look at security. Up until now, we've looked at security from the perimeter. The perimeter is what we defend. So we looked at it from the outside in. Now we have to say, where are you going? What do you want to do? And then look back out to see where you've come from. So is the perimeter relevant still? It depends what you define as the perimeter. The perimeter we see is no longer just being the firewall on the edge of your um, network, your corporate network. The perimeter really we see now is the place where you make an access decision point. So for example, if you're accessing an application in your organization through your your phone or through your laptop, 
then that becomes the perimeter point where the decision is made as to um, verify who you are and what you're going to do. So what we've done is we've taken the perimeter and we've changed its, its location. Its locus has gone from the edge of the organization down to the, where the access point is being made. And it's been necessary, I think, also to meet the different demands driven by our businesses. The businesses now want to be a lot more flexible. They want to be a lot more agile. They want to be able to build and break teams very quickly, bring people in and out. And so in order to do that, we've got to make sure we understand who they are when they decide to access our applications. So that's why we've had to change our thinking around the perimeter. doesn't mean to say we don't think of a corporate perimeter. doesn't mean to say we don't have firewalls anymore. We have those all as part of the layered defense. But we now have to think slightly differently as to where we want to define the perimeter. Now, I suppose this whole model demands a fair bit of monitoring, monitoring your staff. Now, how far do you monitor your staff? I think you have to take a different levels of decision around your staff. What you're actually looking at is the role they have. What's the role they're going to be carrying out? And I think we've had role-based access decisions for, for many, many years now. So it's what is their role within the organization? Then you have to look at them in terms of the context. So we're not really monitoring them. We're just trying to make sure they say who they are. So if, for example, they um, normally work from within one geographical location, if they appear to be coming in from a different geographical location, then that might throw up a red flag. So we're not really monitoring them. We're just understanding the normal behavior or saying where they should work from and how they should work in terms of the series of policies. And that's something we've always done. We've always said you come into work, you, you, you type in your username and password and away you go. Now it's slightly different. You've got your own device, you want to go and work in, from home or from your local coffee shop or you might be in a, a hotel or an airport. But we just want to know and understand those factors so we can then bring in policies to say where we think you should be able to um, access the network. Zero trust. Do you think this is positive language that we should be using? It, it, it does sound a bit negative. I mean, Trust is such a, a good concept in, in theory. It, it can be if we think of it as being destroying trust, but we're not. We're actually building trust. We're actually developing a big, better picture of trust of who we're working with. And that, again, becomes part of the interaction an individual has when they're working within the organization. They know they can be trusted better. One of the elements of, of this form of verification, for example, is referred to as multi-factor authentication where you get a user to authenticate who they are on their phone, on their watch, through a code or whatever. So what you're doing is you're actually bringing the um, ordinary user into part of the decision-making process. When they log in, they're holding up their hand saying, yes, it's me, I can be trusted. So I think you're actually um, building a bigger picture of trust, a bigger interconnection of trust across the organization by involving users in the whole decision-making process. So I don't think we should look at it as being a negative. I think we should try and see it as being as a positive inclusion of everybody within the organization as part of the development of trust between ourselves and between our organization. So can you give me examples of how you've seen this work in organizations and not backfire psychologically on the employees, but actually help them? Well, I think what's, what's important is how you actually explain, introduce, and develop. It's like any IT change any change to the way an organization runs. It's how it's explained, how that you develop that transformation. And I think one of the best examples we've always found of introducing it is quite simply the speed at which it gets picked up within an organization. If 
it was um, objected to, if it was resented, it would be very slow to be picked up. But we find that enrollment is very, very quick. People tend to enroll fairly rapidly by themselves. They, build, they buy into the whole concept. And this is not really surprising. Why? Because we're seeing it happening in our personal lives. We might well log into our email system or one of our particular personal applications that we use, and then we'll have to put in the code. They'll text through a code to us. We're all familiar with that. So I think we're just becoming used to it as part of our everyday interaction with them, with the internet and with applications and sites on the internet. So I don't think that we find a very high level of resentment or rejection, provided to explain, people understand what's going on. We've always found this being very quick pickup of it. What's your advice to CISOs who have to communicate to staff when implementing zero trust architecture? I think, first of all, explain what the issue is. And I think we all understand this whole issue around compromised credentials, attacks going into the organization, your identity being stolen. Um, and I think that if we then explain how we're going to implement the change, how they will be part of the process, and how they will be more secure going forward, I think that becomes a very coherent story to tell to, um, to users within the organization. And so let's, let's break down um, the benefits, in your opinion, about this approach. Well, I think one of the main benefits is that you start to get a far more granular picture from the security point of view of, of who your users are and you get a far better degree of control over who is actually um, starting to use the, the network, who's trying to use the applications. If you look at the statistics, and you can see many, many different statistics around us, you'll find that sort of people quote up to 80% of all attacks are through compromised credentials. And if you look at any major breach, and you look at the analysis, you'll find the expression compromised credential coming in. So if we start to address one of those biggest threats, then I think we start to minimize the risk to the organization. Why? Because we're actually controlling that vulnerability through a series of granular policies which can be put down. And those, those policies are fairly simple policies in many ways. You normally log in between 9 to 5. That's what we're going to restrict you to. You normally log in from the UK. You normally don't log in from another part of the world at this time. You, you have a device which is up to date and which is a current um, in terms of its patching. So we can start to actually bring in those controls which minimize the risk of a breach happening through one of the most common forms which is compromised credentials. So how does it cope with the anomalies? You know, usually you log in 9 to 5 but actually that one weekend is somewhere else. That, <coughs> that's part of the, the growing aspect of, of how we set those policies and how strict you need to, to have them. You can start off with a very global view of this is how we think the policies are but you can then start to change them as you develop a better picture. I don't think there's any one big bang approach to any set of policies and security that works from day one right off. If you go back to implementing SIM technology in, in monitoring, you start to build up experience over time and you start to build up a clearer picture of how people work. And so it is with, um, with any form of policy-driven access control. There is so much emotion attached to trust. Do you think we're ever going to fully manage trust? I think what we can start to do is develop a structure by which we can manage, understand, and communicate trust better. Um, we're always going to be in a scenario where we will never be able to trust anybody, just as we can't in normal life. That's why we lock our cars, because we don't trust um, everybody who's walking down the street. 
So we will have to be able to build up a picture of what trust means, convey that to the people we work with, and then manage that framework in such a way as they can understand and be involved in part of the trust decision-making um, methodology, which is why I referred earlier to the whole idea of um, having authentication in place, people then involved in developing that sense of trust. So what's your advice on first steps to introducing a, a zero trust plan? Well, I think we first of all have to understand what we're trying to do within the organization. Businesses are changing very dramatically. They're moving to the cloud. They're bringing in BYOD. They want ag agility in there. And yet at the same time, there's this huge fear at the CEO level that their business will be dominated by a cyber breach. In fact, if you look at the World Economic Forum um, session up in Davos in January of this year, I think breach and data loss were third and fourth of their top highest risks that they were seeing out of 10. So it's a, a very big business issue. So I think, first of all, understanding from the business point of view. I think if you start then with a small looking at the whole concept of how you manage identity in. Why? Well, if you look at the kill chain, so let's start to think like a bad guy. The bad guy will always want to get into the organization. And one of the first steps within the kill chain is infiltration. So if you can stop them there, you're stopping the major part of the breach. It's the major part because once they're in, they can move, lateral movement across the network. They can exfiltrate data, send data out. But if you can stop them getting in, that becomes a closure part of the whole funnel of the, of the incident. So looking at how you manage identity, how you manage the authentication and authorization of, of who's coming in, that to me is always the first stop. Why? Because it's the first step in the, the kill chain. So let's look there. Let's try and stop it before it gets too bad, before we can get them in. So that's where I'd start to, to look at it. Thinking like the bad guy, what do they want to do? How can we prevent them doing it? Now in the, in the manner of thinking like the enemy, if they see something is starting to work against them, um, they're going to find another way in. <laughs> so what's that next move that they're going to make? Well, that, that's an interesting point, because if you look at the concept of verification, you're making it increasingly hard for them to think of another way in. Why? Let's just think about it. You need to um, try and make sure, as the bad guy, you can get in quietly. So if you're trying to go through an organization which has implemented some form of zero trust ver a verification, you first of all have to compromise the credential. You then might well have to compromise their device of the user. You then have to somehow intercept the authentication to make sure that, that you're in charge of, of that compromised credential. And you've then got to understand you're only limited to particular applications that you can reach. So your lateral movement is harder, much more difficult. Now you think of all of those different elements that are going to be compromised. It's really hard. It becomes very difficult for them. It also becomes very noisy from technology sense. They're going to have to be making different steps, trying to get in different ways. And that will then be picked up by monitoring capabilities much, much easier. So they're going to have to think of a really interesting and novel way to try and get around what is their most common form of attack. And Yes, it's a nascent industry, but you've seen Zero Trust evolve over the years. How do you see it moving forwards? Well, I, th I think the, the evolution has been over the last 15 years or more. 
possibly longer, ever since the Jericho Forum came and started to talk about it in the early 2000s, the whole concept of deparameterization. I see that um, zero trust will continue to evolve to become a far more um, uh, granular form of checking within the actual operation and transactions of the day. So, for example, you, you start to use a particular application and you perform a task within that application. You might well have to be revalidated to do that task. For example, you want to change a bank account details for a client. So you might have to be validated again. So we'll start to get that continual checking going on. So rather than it being at the moment tends to be at the point of access or at the point of calling for an application, it will then start to drive to within the application. How will that affect productivity? Well, it, it, it's, it's a balance between the risk and the opportunity, the, um, the risk of having that compromised. Again, it goes back to how you start to implement it. And I think that's going to be part of the, the challenge going forward. Um, but I think it could be done very quickly. For example, you could validate again just by tapping on a, on a, on a YubiKey that's attached to your keyboard. So it's not very user-intensive in terms of effort. It would flow fairly quickly, but it would reduce the risk of any form of, of um, compromise within a, a transaction. You might well also have to start linking into, for example, device exposure, a particular extreme vulnerability comes in. And I, I know that this is being looked at by Gartner. They refer to it as the Carter approach, which is the continuous um, risk assessment and checking. So I think that's how it will eventually evolve. But I think we're still in relatively early days of its implementation. And over the years, what's the one thing that you've, you've learned that hasn't gone away, keeps recurring, and, and you feel that it won't actually change? Within the security world, we're driven by the business change and technology change. Um, and those are going to just accelerate. And I think that we have to just continually be aware of the technology change that's going to be coming in so we can be on top of that. And the business change that drives that technology change and to be able to deliver solutions to, to meet that in advance. So if you can think ahead of what the business wants to do and go make them suggestions, I think it makes implementing security that little bit easier. How have you done that in the past? How have you been able to make sure your, you know, the, the bases laterally are covered, but also thinking ahead, what's, what's well, helped you? I, I think um, one of the first steps is to look back at your whole security function. And I always think that the security function is being like one of those old clocks with all the, the cogged wheels clicking together. And I think realizing that every time you turn one of those, uh, one of those little wheels, all the um, cogs will spiral throughout the whole organization. And getting that overall look is going to be one of the first drivers. Um, and just being able to see what the need for change will be. Above that, it's how you communicate security through to the organization. 15 years ago, the big question was, how do we communicate to the business? How do we get to the board of directors? Now that's a given. You have to be able to do that. You have to have a clear way of reporting. So I think looking at security holistically, always seeing that it interacts and being able to communicate outside are some of the two big changes, and I think two measures for creating an environment where you can succeed. Thanks to Richard. That's it for this week. Please do subscribe to our podcast, review and rate our shows. It helps other people find us amid the podcast noise. Thanks for all your comments so far. For now, it's bye from us. Join us next time for more Cyber Conversations.